You're listening to The Snap Hook with Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Join us as we take a look at all things sports and politics in the world that we live in today. Yeah, I, I don't want to share a beer with the leader of the free world at the end of the day, right? Over 300 house races are non-competitive. If you look through, it's been Republicans in charge. We try and help you understand the political news by comparing it to our sports stories of the day. And just like a snap hook, we're coming in from the left side of the fairway. People who are in control of things decide this person has displeased us. Welcome back into our Snap Hook listeners. Tim Costello joined, as always, with Scott Barzilla. Scott, we are just rolling along here as we're now starting episode number three. Crazy to think uh, how fast this all is, is coming together, but world just keeps seems to be lobbing us some softball topics here to comment on. Absolutely. And, you know, this week we were going to focus on fascism, and that, that got started. I'm going to tell a little story here in a minute. But uh, you you had an interesting conversation off air that you wanted to mention. Yeah, you, I was you know I was talking with my with my wife at dinner tonight, and she's a teacher as we've we've mentioned a couple times, and you know her and some of the other teachers were just sitting there lamenting of of the way our, our government's going, showing some some worry for the future. Hey, I'm I'm really worried for the future of our government. What does this mean for this? And and I it was very sad for me to have to kind of break it down to her and say, honey, you know, I'm sorry, we're we're basically a fascist country as it is. We're 90% of the way there. We are uh, very close to being pushed into the deep end of that is fascism. And, uh, and I think as you and I continue to get into this discussion of number one, what is fascism? Number two, how does it spread? And number three, why is it spread so easily? Um, I think we'll really be able to point out where America is and, and why we're we're basically already there and and that doesn't even include you know how we handle economic and, and world geopolitical problems because we've been propping up right wing coups and dictators for fifty years now. We're just now talking about how this country itself is run. We're not even talking about the geopolitical landscape that the United States has created through fascism and through far-right dictators. We're talking about here in America, uh, the decisions that our voters have made and and with the politicians that we have in office, the direction that we're heading. Yeah, and so, you know, we got started on this topic. My wife and I watched a play at the Alley Theater this last week, in fact, a week ago today. And, you know, we subscribed for years. Uh, to the Alley Theater, and they got, and, and occasionally they do world premieres. And so that was something that happened. Is, And I don't think this is the first showing of this play, period. I think what's happening is they're debuting it at about five or six different cities. And so the play that was being run was called Cambodian Rock Band. Uh, and it was an interesting look. And so basically it was based on the Khmer Rouge, uh, which some of y'all may have learned about in history, maybe a little bit, because we were talking about that last week, how, you know, we, we learn bits and pieces. And so you may have seen the movie The Killing Fields, some of y'all that are watching this. 
And so if you've seen that movie or if you've heard about this, it, um, it was run by a guy named Pol Pot. And he ended up killing about a million and a half Cambodians over a four-year period. So this play, and, and I don't want to go a deep dive because, you know, we can talk, there's other podcasts that do a terrific job of doing a deep dive into these characters. But uh, the play was based on a guy by the name of Comrade Doik, who is real. And he was one of the first people convicted in the tri- uh, war crimes tribunal that was taking place in Cambodia. And his story intertwined with a couple of people from this rock band. Now, this rock band is a fictional band that didn't really exist. But it's intertwined with this Comrade Doik. Comrade Doik ran a prison camp in Cambodia uh, after the, the Khmer Rouge took over. Now, what's interesting about this, and, and this is where the backdrop of fascism kind of comes in, is before he was the runner of this prison camp, Comrade Doik was a math teacher. He was a father. He was a math teacher. Basically a good guy. But he had decided very early on that I'm getting on this train or the train's going to run over me. And when you're when you're listening to the dialogue and play, and you know I don't want to get too much into it in case people want to watch it, but uh, one of the members of the band basically said, "I'm for Cambodia, and I'm going to do whatever I need to do to stay alive." Sure enough, he becomes a prison guard, and one of the members of the band is his prisoner. And so that's, you know, where most of this play kind of takes place. I mean, obviously there's a lot of emotion there. There's just, and because everybody knows what's going to happen before it happens. But where this play kind of you know, took me is not necessarily with Cameron Rooch, because really, you know, and at the end of the day, a million and a half people dead is very low on the scale of genocide that we've seen around the world. I mean, we've seen horrible things with Rwanda, with Somalia, with Bosnia, Venezuela. You know, we've seen uh, the cultural revolution in China uh, with how many people Stalin killed in Russia. 1.5 million is just a low number as compared. But what the key thing is, is that is to see how normally decent people can do extremely indecent things. And that was the most interesting part of it. And I think when we look at specifically the rise of fascism and the spread of fascism, it's all about the a lot of the psychological things that go with it, right? So completely separate of fascism, look at the Stanford prison experiment, I think is, is a great way to get this conversation started. And for those of you who don't know what the Stanford prison experiment was, there was a, uh, I believe, psychology professor uh, at the University of Stanford. It was in the 70s. They, they did make a movie on it. It's on HBO. It's pretty decent. Um, essentially, signed up some college kids, gave them money, split half of them into guards, half of them into prisoners, and and really just let it roll. Let the let the guards be the guards and let the prisoners be the prisoners. And the experiment didn't even last a full week because so quickly the mentalities change. When those people who were determined as guards were given that quote-unquote little bit of power, 
everything in that experiment changed. They're they're lining people up. They're beating kids. They're they're enacting the little bit of power that they have. And so when you look at fascism and when you look at the rise of these things, the psychology of when people get into power, certain things will happen, right? There's anytime you give people unquestioned power, things are going to happen. And with fascism, that unquestioned power comes, at least in my opinion, from, from the idea of nationalism. That's where it starts. The idea that your country is the best, you are better than other people, and your sense of, of self is tied to being Italian, tied to being German, tied to being American. But whatever it is, you feel that you are the person, the group, the ethnic group to be leading the world because your country is the best. And when you start to mix those processes together, the psych like psychology of it, along with the innate belief that America first, Germany first, you know, Italy first, the machismo that comes with it, it sets you on a very, very dark path. And I think as we continue to work our way through, you know, what is fascism, we'll, again, we'll start to lay out the sim similarities between other countries in America. But again, it starts with that believing of America first. America is the greatest place in the entire world. The you know the land of, the land of freedom and opportunity. The only place where you can have freedom and opportunity. These are not good things to be preaching about America. Number one, because they're not true. Number two, because they're setting up this false sense of nationalism that are only going to lead to more problems down the road. Yeah, and I think it's, um, I remember, and unfortunately I don't remember who said the quote. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe you can remember this, but it's talking about uh, years ago somebody said, you know, when fascism comes to America, it'll be wrapped in the flag and it'll be accompanied with Christianity. Uh, that's not word for word, but it, that's basically what, what he said. Um, and so, you know, the very first, uh, if you go into museums, particularly World War II museums, the Holocaust Museum, they'll have on there the characteristics of fascism. And with most of these, there's 14 of them. And the first one that Tim just mentioned was powerful and continuing nationalism. And this is where, you know, and Tim was talking about the fact that 90, we're 90% there. Basically, what you're hearing is you're hearing the silent part out loud. So you're hearing uh, people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene talk about Christian nationalism. Now, I want you to think about this, and I want you to put it together, because you know I've, I've studied the Gospels, as I, as I know Tim has. In the Gospels, there's the woman at the well, and Jesus comes to, to approach the woman at the well. And basically, the woman at the well, the way the Gospels are written, teaches Jesus that he's not there for just the, uh, the Jewish people. He's there for the whole world. And so I don't know how in your head you can wrap around the fact that we are going to be the greatest country in the world and we're going to be Christian just for Americans. I don't know. I don't understand how, how your mind gets there because Jesus was the exact opposite. Jesus was like, I'm not just here for these people. I'm here for all people. Well, I think, too, it, it, it's a couple of things. First and foremost, 
majority of Americans have no idea what actual Christianity is, right? The idea in America has been shifted to if you make a lot of money, it's because Jesus loves you and you are blessed financially because you live a good Christian life. That's that's kind of been the way Christianity, at least in my lifetime, has been preached in America. Prosperity comes from living a good Christian life. When, you know, as you said, you've studied the Bible. It specifically says in there you're not getting into heaven with if you're an extremely rich person. You know, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to gain entry to heaven. That is literally right there in the Bible. So I think that's a big, big part of it. Second, I think the way that the Republican Party has kind of evolved from the libertarian movement has really guided that as well. When you have this combination of a misunderstanding of Christianity and really a selfish view of politics, which is, it's all about what's going to benefit me, then you get this combination of Christian fascism or Christian nationalism, whatever you want to call it, where it's all about what's best for my country. We're going to say we're all good Christians, even though we don't do things that good Christians do. And we're going to commit genocide. We're going to cause world starvation. We're going to um, deplete resources across third world countries to benefit our Christian nation because you guys aren't Christians. And that's, I mean, that's where a lot of it comes from. If you look at the, the places that we take advantage of or even in the, in the history of time, they've the the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. They were you know, Indians were called savages, you know, and, and, and things along that nature. And we were able to do some pretty terrible things because they weren't Christians. And that's that history. And along with that idea of, um, you know, a misidea of what history of what Christianity is has has really led the mostly the Republican Party into this idea of Christian nationalism as a good thing. And they wear it proudly on their chest as, yes, I am a Christian nationalist. And when we started this podcast, we came up with the idea of melding sports and politics together. And part of that, I was thinking, you know, and I was thinking of it myself, it's like, okay, you've, you've put up with the politics. Now we're going to give you a lime wedge of sports. Or you put up with the sports. Now we're going to give you a lime wedge of politics, you know, depending on you know, what your personal preference is. But this is one of those cases where sports really can give you a prism into looking at this thing. Because the problem is, is that when you bring up any particular politician, like I, I brought up Marjorie Taylor Greene, you can mention any name. We are so conditioned to have teams. I'm team Democrat. I'm team Republican. I'm team left. I'm team right. That whenever you hear, you know, a name, you immediately come, you know, you have an association with it, positive or negative. So we're going to shift this to the sports world. Tim and I are Astros fans. We just won the World Series. We just lost you know, maybe the best pitcher of our generation to the Mets. So let's say that, you know, we, we've got some money left over under the, uh, under the, the luxury tax. Seems to me Trevor Bauer's available, looking for work. If I told you, and this is a hypothetical, and this is one of those rhetorical questions, because I know Tim's answer and I know my answer. 
Would you take Trevor Bauer on your team if it guaranteed you a World Series championship? Right. Uh, and we talked about the other day. For me, the answer is no. Right. And I think we can we can continue to go on to the reasons why. But real quick, this why this is a perfect example. I'm an Astros first guy, right? Like, I would much rather the Astros win the World Series than any other team. I'd rather watch an Astros game than any other sporting event out there. I'd rather watch a mid-July Astros game than the Super Bowl on Sunday that doesn't have my team in it. I am Astros first, so we'll clarify it that way. I want my team to win the World Series almost more than anything. That is why I watch baseball. I want to see my team win. But when you, when you mention the Trevor Bauer, it's at what cost? At what cost do I want to see my team win the World Series? Do I want to see my team betray everything that I find important as a human being? And we can look at it. It already happened once with Roberto Osuna. You know, you go and trade for a, a closer with, with questionable character issues and questionables at best. But what does it say about your organization? Are you winning the right way? Are you doing things the right way? You know, whatever you want to say about the sign stealing or whatever, I could care less. But if you came at me for Tobman or the Asuna trade or hypothetical in this scenario, signing a guy like Bauer, those are real criticisms. And those are things that I would have to take to heart as a fan of why is my team putting someone like this on a clubhouse when... At the end of the day, baseball is a, a, a game you share with your kids, right? That's what makes baseball great is taking your kids to the ballpark. Do you want to take your daughter to a game that Trevor Bauer is pitching? Because I don't. No, and, and, you know, it's funny. And I and, and I remember watching, you know, and she's, you know, grew up with the horrible Astros. And the funny thing is I remember we go to a game about, I would say, 2010, 2011-ish. She's four, maybe five years old. And so she's she's looking at that, and all of a sudden she just screams out, the train's never going to go. And then I have that moment, you know, that every parent has, or I'm sitting there, okay, do I lie to my child? Do I tell her the train's going to go? Or to say, you know what, honey, the Astros suck. The train's not going anywhere. Sorry. But, you're absolutely right. What you know, because when the Roberto Asuna trade happened, I'm an Astros first guy. I tried to find ways to justify it in my head. Well, he, you know, was he really convicted? He says he didn't do it. Um, everybody deserves to be forgiven, and this is what the mind does. The mind, and this is the same thing that happened in Cambodian rock band. The guy, Comrade Doik, who was given life sentence for crimes against humanity, he convinced himself that he hadn't done anything wrong. He didn't actually physically kill any of his prisoners. He never struck a prisoner. So therefore, he didn't really do anything awful. He was following orders. And that's the same thing. Roberto Asuna, he's a good pitcher. Maybe I can overlook the fact that he beat the crap out of his wife. Well, Trevor Bauer, you know, how many is he people? But he wasn't convicted of rape, so, yeah, maybe I can, you know, and that's where we go. And in in our our political world, it's the same thing. 
we have people in our party, whichever party we might be in, who are scumbags. Just pure and simple. They're scumbags. You can try to make excuses for them. They're just scumbags. And we've had people playing on our teams uh, who I think we would probably both hate if they were playing on another team. Like, I think Alex Pregman, Bregman, not a horrible dude. He's cocky. But, but he's cocky, and if he played on the Dodgers, you'd be like, man, I hate that son of a bitch. Do you remember but, Major League Two? It's not a, not a great movie for obvious reasons, but they make the trade, at the, or they make the big free agent signing. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, and they bring in Jack Parkman. And, you know, Doyle's on air, and he's talking about, oh, what a change a uniform can really do for your opinion of a new player, and yada, yada, yada. And then he covers the microphone. He's like, he's still a jerk. <laughs> it's the same thing, right? Like, it's, we know these guys are jerks, but we sit here and and we let them bloviate, and we let them make asses of themselves and make asses of the country because they're doing it for our team, right? Like if you're, if you're a Republican and I, and we, we said we weren't going to talk a lot about the state of the union. I don't want to get into it, to it a lot, but how many times in the history have you, have you sent somebody out after the state of the union to do a rebuttal speech on, and, and it was just absurdity. It, you, you send somebody out with literally little to no status you have, I mean, as, as much as we don't like certain Republicans, you've got the Speaker of the House as a Republican. If you really wanted to have some rebuttal comments, there's your guy. And send, you, instead, you send a lightning rod out there to just say outrageous, inflammatory stuff, and we're all just, and, and Republicans go, yeah, great job. That one was better than the State of the Union. They don't even listen. They don't even care. Their team is playing, and that's all that they care about. Right, and then, of course, you know, the most absurd just in the last, you know, just several weeks, George Santos. I mean, this guy is an absolute ass clown. I mean, there, there's no other way to describe him. Do you see anybody on the Republican side saying you need to resign? Nope. Well, not at the national level. Even his own state party said he should resign. But the Speaker of the House, no issues. No committee people have issues with him. No other Congress people coming out and saying, I don't want to work with this guy. Nothing. And it's what's crazy is, we've, we've talked about Osuna, right? When the Astros made that trade, multiple people in the Astros clubhouse, Justin Verlander included, came out and had some things to say about, we're going to need to talk to this guy and, and see what he's about because we don't agree with what he did. We don't agree with putting somebody like that in our clubhouse. There's none of that. On the political level, there is absolutely none of that. Of I really don't want to work with this guy. I'll, you know, I'll have to. I'll have to get to know him and see what he's about. It's it's immediate. Like, can't wait to work together. Can't wait to see what kind of terrible things we can do together. Yeah, and I think there there are different levels of scumbag, certainly. Uh, and I think like when you look at the sports uh, example, I think the one that uh, that occurs to me is back in the '90s, the later part of the '90s. The Rockets traded for uh, Charles Barkley. And, that was the you know, first jersey I ever bought was a Rockets Charles Barkley jersey. And I remember I, I watched uh, one playoff game in that first title run. And it was when we beat the Suns, game seven, in the, uh, the semifinals. And he got, 
he got thrown out of the game, and that was the happiest that anybody ever was in that moment, was watching Charles Barkley get ejected. A couple years later, he's a rocket. Oh, we love him now. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, so everybody, and so parties have scumbags. Now you have scumbags as well. And, and I think if we put our heads together, we could think of a few Democrats that are probably scumbags. And I think, you know, uh, the best example, we've, we've used him as a whipping boy here on the Republican side. Ted Cruz. If we pull aside January 6th, let's, let's leave that aside for a moment. Because, you know, he had some involvement there. You know, how much did he plan with them? Or did they just not tell him any information, say, we want you to object? You know, okay, whatever, right? Other than that, I don't think he's committed any crimes. He hasn't cheated on his wife. I mean, I mean so is he, you know, is he a criminal other than January 6th? Probably not. But if you ask anybody in the Senate, even his own colleagues on the Republican side, say he's a scumbag. But he's not a criminal scumbag. I mean, and, and so if you look at, you know, and, and just people on the right, and, and I call them performance artists. Like what Marjorie Taylor Greene was doing at, at the State of the Union, that's performance art. It's not getting anything accomplished. Sitting there heckling the president in the middle of a speech that doesn't really do anything to really solve anything. It's just something to sit there and say, look at me, I'm a clown, give attention to me. That's all that it's saying. It, ex it excites a certain part of her base in her home state that keeps donations coming in. That's all it is. I mean, she showed up to the State of the Union with a balloon like, like it, and she got a laugh. She probably got some donations off of it. We think she's a clown, but nothing happens. Nothing changes because as you said they they can say all these things behind closed doors right you know there's if you asked any senator off the record no microphone no nothing yeah they probably would say ted cruz is a scumbag and and all that stuff but the moment the cameras are rolling or the moment that they're asked to comment ted's a great colleague ted works hard for the american people i look forward to, to working with ted to pass xyz bill whatever it is no one has the ability to at least come out and say, I don't want to work with this guy. I don't want to be on a team with this guy because he's a bad person. And really, and so to, to keep this uh, fascism train moving along, kind of use that analogy. Uh, the problem with fascism, fascism takes a while to take hold. I mean, this has been in the United States, this has been going on for a while. I would say I would say you you would start the the roots really with Reagan with Reagan right. coming in would be about the time period you could say okay here's where here's where things took a turn right because that's when a lot of the tax rates um, changed as far as the corporate level we started seeing uh, it it cool to be a billionaire versus something that we were disgusted by you started seeing um, the federal government be involved a lot less in things. A lot of the deregulation of things started happening under Reagan. Uh, a lot less federal guidelines for certain things. You, you started seeing the trickle-down economics thought process come through during Ronald Reagan's presidency. 
and and you started really to see performative art i think start to take shape in the united states government because for the first time you had a legitimate actor as the president of the united states so reagan wasn't the brains behind their operation but he was such a good front man such a good let's just put him out there with a speech and we know he'll perform a guy can read he can lead, he can read lines he knows his lines he'll be out there and he'll perform that's all you needed from reagan and and as, again they continue the fascism that's what you need from a good fascism front man you need a strong leader who really doesn't do a lot but he is your strong figurehead and that's what Reagan started that process. If we skip down, so I told you, you know, we cheated. Um, no, we didn't cheat. We uh, teased the 14 characteristics, right? And so skipping down to number three on the list, number three is the identification of enemies, scapegoats, as a unifying cause. And this is something that the right has done a brilliant job, you know, starting with Reagan. And if you have know, watched SNL back in the days, I mean, you could look these things up on YouTube. The most hilarious sketch that I can think of with Reagan was where Phil Hartman played Reagan. Phil Hartman, God rest his soul, is a great comedic actor. And so he was, you know, it was like Reagan during Iran-Contra. And so, you know, everybody has that picture of Reagan where he's like, you know, does he even know what's going on? Well, in this you know sketch on, on SNL, Reagan was in charge of everything. He knew everything, and he was running the whole show. And it was just hilarious. You know, at, at one point he's just this. You know, somebody walks in, Mr. President, it's your photo opportunity with the Girl Scouts. He goes, I hate this part of the job. Damn it! You know, so he goes out there. Hey, little girl, how many? You know, it, it was just great. But see, here last week the House did this. Um, and for those of y'all that are not, you know, up on your government, they passed a resolution. A resolution has no effect whatsoever. It's just basically us bloviating and saying, this is what we think, particularly when it's only one chamber of Congress. The House passed a resolution condemning socialism. And the whole reason that you do this is that you want to see how many people on the other side are not going to vote for it? Because I think there were, I want to say, 83 members of the House that didn't vote for it. And there were, like, I want to say about 15 people who just voted present and, and didn't vote yay or nay. And so they'll sit there and say, you see, this person, you know, is not ready to condemn socialism. But it's like, okay, folks. Number one, can you, whoever you is, can you tell me what socialism is? Define it for me. What is it? Because I guarantee you, they're going to call you and, and look at look where we've been over the last few years. There are socialists. Ooh, big bad. There are people who are Antifa. My grandfathers were both Antifa. Yeah. They my fought grandfather in fought in World War II. Yeah, yeah mine, did, mine did too. They fought in World War II. Now, one of mine was a cook, so I don't know. Did he do fighting? Uh, you know, he was on a destroyer. You know what? I, I, I'm not going to go there. But he, he served his country fighting fascism. Okay, that's what Antifa is, anti-fascist. So what I love it is when we combine these groups together and we talk about how 
Antifa, they're fascist. And it's like, um, uh, do you know what that stands for? And so you have those people. You have Antifa, you have the socialist, we have Black Lives Matter. And so we are just going to, and then, of course, we have the, and I love how they've chronicled this, we've gone from illegal immigration to invasions. People are invading our country. It's like, what in the hell? Are they carrying pitchforks and swords? What, 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 I mean, yeah, anytime you hear Abbott talk about the border, we're being flooded, flooded at the border. And yet at the same time, the same people who talk about our borders being overrun, being flooded, the colossal disaster, same one saying we don't have anybody to work. Same people saying no one wants to work certain jobs. Any, any economist will tell you that the key to keeping an economy afloat is immigration. New people coming to your country looking to make something of themselves are sadly willing to take jobs that people who are educated and, and spent the money to go to college aren't willing to do, or at least for the wages that they're being offered. So if you want to shut down immigration, but then at the same time gripe about no one wants to work, that's how we know you're full of it. That's how we know you are just, again, bloviating, lying, opportunistic, whatever you want to use. That's how we know that you're full of crap. And so that's where, you know, we go down. I'm skipping down on our 14 uh, pillars here. Real, real quick, too, before we go too far down, while we're still talking about Reagan, the second, the second pillar of fascism is a disdain for individual human rights. And I think Reagan was a perfect example of combining the second and third pillar, which is the disdain for human rights and the identif identifying of enemies. When you look at how he handled the AIDS epidemic, he villainized homosexuality in this country, called it a depravity, made it basically into a mental illness, ignored the problem of an epidemic raging in our country for years. When reporters would ask him about it, he would joke and say, what, are you gay? Are you worried about this? That's, that's it. That's the start of it. When you don't care about a whole group of people, you villainize those group of people, and you don't care about their rights at all for safety or to feel healthy in their own lifestyle. That was that was the beginning with Reagan right there. Yeah, and I think uh, I was going to add on another thing that he did. But before that, you know, I'm pretty sure that Reagan, probably until his death, was convinced that global warming was caused by the AIDS quilt. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, number six on the list, and this is something Ronald Reagan also did, uh, is controlled mass media. Something that Ronald Reagan did is he eliminated something called the Fairness Doctrine. And what the Fairness Doctrine basically stated is that if you had a news program, you had to state both sides, or really all sides. But, you know, most of the time we consider it both sides. So this is where our right-wing media bubble comes from. And the best description that I've heard for the media bubble is our silos. And so I don't know how many of y'all, some of y'all that you know, might not be living you know, near the country, you might not know what a silo is. So a silo, uh, we have you know, quite a few of those in Texas. In my mom's hometown, Edna, which has about 5,000 people, they're all rice silos. And what silos are is they're, they're just a huge storage container. And if you look up, the, uh, look up the reports, I think there are like between 15 to 20 people that die in silos every year. Because basically what happens is, is that you, know, they, you get dumped just tons of stuff in the silo. And there are people that get caught in the silo. And 
it's like quicksand. You, you can't get out. I mean, you're, you're just weighted down with whatever those silos are containing. And so if you look at uh, mass media from a silo perspective, you spend a lot of time watching Newsmax, spend a lot of time watching OANN, you spend a lot of time watching Fox News. You are stuck in right-wing disinformation. And so that's when we start looking at, you know, so, well, if you're socialist, that must be Venezuelan. Ignoring the fact that practically all of Europe is socialist. Canada, socialist. Seems to me things are going pretty well in those countries, you know, for the most part. You don't see, you know, rampant homelessness or anything like that in those countries. You don't see the number of people who are uninsured. I mean, everybody's insured in those countries. Uh, you don't see, you know, just the, you know, the horrible, you know, numbers that we sometimes see in education. Or uh, if you look at, you know, just life expectancy rates, life expectancy in the United States is lower than it is throughout Europe. Yet, what do we hear? We hear that socialism bad, socialism evil, socialism doesn't work. That is, you know, by far the greatest disinformation campaign that we've ever seen. That's something that Reagan brought in. Okay, that's been 40 years in the making. You don't get people to turn on their own neighbors overnight. This is something that, you know, when you get that constant barrage, when you get, you know, a relay effect of Sean Hannity and then Laura Ingraham and then Tucker Carlson, all saying the same things for three hours, yeah, your mind's going to turn into mush. Your mind's going to turn into, oh my God, these people are coming across the border. There was a woman, and I, I, my favorite part of this whole invasion story, there was a woman in Minnesota who was convinced that people from Mexico and Central America were going to come up and they were going to steal her lake house in Minnesota. What the hell? When I when I worked for Club Corps, uh, part of my job was calling former country club members across the country and, and seeing if they wanted to return to their clubs. And I was talking to somebody in Georgia, and uh, you know, as the conversation goes on, hey, where are you from? I'm from Texas. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, why is that? Well, you, you guys are being overrun with illegals. I don't know. I don't even know how you can feel safe in your state right now with the amount of illegal immigration going on. I was like, hey man, just, just for what it's worth, like, we, we don't have an issue here. It's never been an issue. It's something that every two years gets talked about right around the election cycle so people like you will vote the way that they want you to vote. But if you've ever been to Texas, you would very much understand that most of us don't have an issue. We have no problem. If you've been to Houston, pretty culturally diverse city and for the most part it's a pretty welcoming city there's obviously going to be the outliers who are assholes but you know if you are someone who's immigrating to this country from mexico and you come to houston texas for the most part i have to think at least in my experiences you're welcome with open arms well not only just mention that i mean i remember when uh, dr babin who happens to be my representative in, in congress damn it uh, sorry, anyway, <clears throat> he uh, did one of those uh, listen in on a phone interview conference thing. And so he invited me on. 
And so I was going to ask a question. And so his screener gets on. I said, well, you know, he's scapegoating illegal aliens. It says, isn't he aware that illegal aliens commit crimes at a lesser rate than people who are already here? And his screener's like, and he just started mumbling. Of course, I didn't get in. I had to listen to him bloviate about the Carrington event, which, you know, my wife uh, works with radiation in NASA. Carrington event was something that happened in the 1800s and was a huge solar flare. And he was talking about how it knocked out the electrical grid in the Carrington event, knocked out our electrical grid. And I'm like, what a fucking dumbass. You know, what electrical grid in the 1800s, pal? You, you don't know it, but that's the thing. There's, but these are facts. People who come here, whether they are illegal or whether they are legal, documented or undocumented, they commit crimes at a much lower rate than people who are already here. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense. What's their biggest fear? Their biggest the fear. The biggest fear is being deported. Yeah. Well, how do I get deported? Well, shit, if I commit a crime, <laughs> I'm probably going to be deported. Um, I mean, at my school, we are teaching, I would say, it's close to 90% Hispanic. So how many of those parents are legal? I don't know. And honestly, I don't care. As long as their kid comes to school, does the best he or she can, you know, and as long as the parents, you know, will be somewhat supportive of what we're trying to do, that's all I can ask for as an educator. I don't care where you're from. I don't care if you have documents. I mean, it's, it is what it is. And, and to continue on with, again, America being headed towards that direction, uh, number seven on the, on the pillars of fascism right after the control of mass media is obsession with security, i.e. walls. So, again, this is something that is driving the public fear that makes it easier for this. When you want to say an invasion, it's an invasion of ideology. And that's where the invasion is coming from. It's not from the South. It's, it's, from, it's from media and it's from our politicians. They are invading your thought process with bad takes, essentially. They are, I mentioned it a couple episodes ago, they're that kid in Little League who's grabbing pitches eight, out, eight inches outside the zone and trying to bring them back. They are just throwing a litany of, of false information, bad takes, and you're living in this silo, this media sphere where you don't hear anything else, and all of a sudden you feel like you're under attack. You feel like your way of life is under attack. And I and I heard a great radio interview the other day. Um, on a, It was actually a podcast interview I listened to. It's a podcast called Knowledge Fight, uh, where two gentlemen listened to Alex Jones's show and basically debunk all the crap that Alex Jones says on air. And one of the points that they brought up is that boomer generation, the older generation, is really more susceptible to this kind of misinformation because they grew up with the communist boogeyman around the corner. The, the Red Scare of the 60s, 70s, and into Reagan, into the 80s, it was always on the back of your mind. Communism was always coming. Communism was the enemy. So now these same people, having quote-unquote defeated communism, are now very easily molded into believing certain things. And they're now being molded into 
their great country is under attack again. And this time it's socialism. This time it's it's ideologies from other countries and people coming here illegally and bringing their culture with them and changing what America is. But I really thought that was a great point to hear that a, a certain generation feared this mythological boogeyman of communism for so long. Now they don't have that fear anymore, but it was easier to replace it with something else because they were predispositioned to believe in that existential fear. Yeah, and, and when I taught government, I always taught the political spectrum is not a line. The political spectrum is a circle. It's a, it really, I think it's a horseshoe because if uh, you look at authoritarian communism and authoritarian fascism, you know, a la Stalin versus Hitler, they're really both pretty shitty people, and there's only this little tiny gap in between what makes them shitty. Yeah, and that's where, that's where I had it, and I had uh, what I call totalitarianism on the South Pole. And so, yeah, I can get there with fascism on the right, I can get there with communism on the left, but if you're living in those countries, what's the literal difference there? And on the North Pole, you had what we call limited government, which is you know, more of your, your liberal democracies around the world and you could get there for the right you can get there but let me we've been teasing this i want to go through the list i want to read the list and so and i want everybody to think in their minds what does this sound like okay so uh we've talked about powerful and continuing nationalism we talked about disdain for the recognition of human rights we talked about identification of enemies as scapegoats uh supremacy of the military rampant sexism that's another thing of fascism we had controlled mass media Obsession with national security. There's another one we've mentioned. Corporate power is protected. Labor power is suppressed. Disdain for intellectuals and the arts. Obsession with crime and punishment. Rampant cronyism and corruption. And then the last, the finale, fraudulent elections. So when we run through that list, and I want you to think for a minute. You know, I know Tim's about to jump in here. Just give yourself a moment and ask yourself, who does that sound like? And, and while you're thinking about that, what's interesting to me on that list, there's one that, that sticks out more than others, especially in America. When I was growing up, um, the way labor unions were explained to me, I, I could not, for the life of me, understand why anyone would join one had no idea in what world is a labor union useful, why would anyone do this, they're so corrupt, you know, you learn about the mafia and Jimmy Hoffa and how Vegas was built off stealing money from the unions, why would anyone join this? And, and, and nothing in school, nothing in our school history classes reinforced the positive impact of the labor union. Not once was it ever mentioned in United States history. Not once did they ever mention that the five-day work week came because the coal union went to war against the coal owners and Pinkerton detectives who literally tried to kill them. That was a union fighting for those rights. I didn't learn any of that. Eventually, on my own, I learned about unions and learned how important it is to be able to collectively bargain and to have every voice united to be able to stand up against you know, the man or whoever your boss is or organization that you work for and have everybody negotiating at once at the negotiation table. I, I eventually, through my own studies of history, learned the, the gains that the labor unions have made for us in this country. But then you look at, again, it goes back to Ronald Reagan, really, that time period, 
of busting up the unions, breaking down the strength of the union, reducing union membership, making it so you don't have to be a member of a union to work in certain industries. And then on top of it, using the, the media, the mainstream media, especially television and movies, to make unions look bad. I can't think of any movie in my lifetime that had a positive view of the union. I, I can think of several Sopranos episodes where they talk about some no-show jobs and all this other ways of that they're ripping off the whatever pipe fitters union or carpenters union or whatever one that they're embedded in. But I can't think of one positive representation of a labor union in any movie that I've seen. Well, tell you all a, a quick historical story, but then my own personal story on unions. But uh, you undoubtedly learned about Upton Sinclair in your U.S. history class, uh, wrote the book called The Jungle, uh, which was about the meatpacking industry. What's interesting when you look at, you know, the so-called media and, and whether or not, you know, it's fair and whatnot. So in the 1930s, Upton Sinclair runs for the governor of California. I don't know if you knew that. Did you? Uh, so I did, I did not know. So, so when he's running for the governor of California, the publisher of the LA Times said, you know, out loud, and I quote, we have to beat that son of a bitch any way we can. Because Upton Sinclair was a socialist. Oh, God, it's horrible. But the thing is, is that, and that's where labor unions, that's where fighting for those things, that's what staved off communism coming into this country. Because communism becomes really, really attractive for people who are not making anything. Correct. It is the it is the way to fight back for the lower class. And that's why most communist uprisings start in countries with a lot of farmers, right? Because you are self-sufficient, something happens, the crops aren't growing, government stole your crops, whatever it is, you're now in a position of, I can't feed my family, I'm ready to fight. But, you know, if, I'm, if all of a sudden I've got somebody sitting there saying, hey, you only have to work 40 hours a week. Hey, if you work overtime, you're going to get time and a half. Hey, you only have you don't have to work Saturday and Sunday. Hey, if you're a kid and seven years old, you don't have to work in the factory. You know, now all of a sudden, you know, when unions are, are spurring these things on, we don't have communism coming to our country. So if you're, you know, if coming from the right, you should look at, you know, labor unions as something as just say, okay, this is a group that maybe we don't like everything they have to say, but geez, they, they keep the really bad elements, the, the you know, the left. Um, I'm a member of the Texas State Teachers Association, TSTA. Okay, we cannot have labor unions in Texas if you're teachers. You, you have professional organizations. We, we are a right-to-work state, which was that, what that means is that we cannot go on strike. Um, so we have a group that instead lobbies for our interest to the uh, state legislature. But see, here's what belonging to TSTA did. I had a principal when I was a counselor who tried basically to fire me is what it uh, is what it amounts to. And so when she got to the point where she was trying to fire me, I called my TSTA rep. They got me in touch with a TSTA attorney. I did not pay a dime more than what my dues cost. And the lawyer from TSTA was actually able to walk through and save my job. 
That's what labor unions do. It's collective bargaining. It's protection for workers because one worker in the face of an entire corporation is powerless. But you put all those workers together, okay, I'd like to see you produce whatever you want to produce without any of us. And that's, you know, that's where the labor unions come in. And so, I mean, that's is absolutely right. And I think the last one, and I want to talk about the last one because I think this is where people on the right are going to come back at people on the left. And the last one was fraudulent elections. But here's, I, I was looking up a stat because, you know, we were talking about voter fraud, I think, in one of the first two episodes. I think it was, was the framing the framing episode. Yeah, and I wanted to talk, and I wanted to look this up because I wanted to make sure I knew. In the state of Texas, since 2004, that's 20 years, virtually, there have been 90 successful prosecutions of voter fraud. 90. Now, I want you to think about how many different elections we've had, because we have elections. At least every, every two year. years. Yeah, every, every year. year. I mean, if there's local elections, right? Yeah. And Scott, so, too, on, on top of that. We saw how many people Ron DeSantis had arrested in Florida for, you know, fraudulent voting. Not a single, not a single one had their charges hold. Every single one of those had their charges dropped. It is not easy to prove election fraud because you have to prove intent on top of action, right? Like you didn't vote not knowing I couldn't vote. That's always the big thing. Oh, I thought I could. The, it, it's one of the it's one of the toughest things to prove, but it's one of the easiest things to proclaim. Well, and, and let's look at I mean, and and you look at the cases that have come out. Uh, certainly, the prominent cases. I mean, we have our former White House Chief of Staff, who is somehow magically registered in two different states. Uh, we has like uh, when he have like a little uh, a double wide in a trailer park, and that was him registered. And so what's funny is, is that you have all these people on the right sitting here saying, voter fraud, voter fraud, voter fraud. The only prominent cases I've ever heard of voter fraud is people on the right who are voting illegally. And so this is where in, in the psychological world, because I have a little bit of psychological training, this is what we call projection. So everything that they accuse you of doing is stuff that they are actually doing. Okay. And that's where fraudulent elections comes. Now, now think about what happens here. Okay, again, this is we talked a little bit about this last week where we talked about the whole idea of astroturfing. Okay, this is where this comes in. Okay, the fraudulent elections, that's not a thing. Okay, we, we've had like in Texas, I would say probably since 2004, we're getting close to a billion total ballots cast. 90? I mean, we're talking like, you know, maybe 0.01% of ballots cast are fraudulent. I mean, there hasn't been an election in Texas decided by that few votes ever. So, so what are we going to do now? What we're going to do is we're going to sit there and say that you have to have a voter ID. So you have to have a driver's license. There are some people, particularly the elderly, but, but also very poor, who don't have a driver's license. Okay, we're going to sit there and say that you have to have how many different forms of ID. Then we're going to sit there and say, well, we're not really going to fully staff the, ballot, uh, the precincts in certain locations of town. And so we're going to sit there and say, hey, in your precinct, 
it's going to take you six hours to vote because you're just going to have to wait. In Clear Lake, I'm in, I'm out, I vote. Why? Because I'm white and I live in an upper middle class neighborhood. So presumably I'm voting Republican. That's their mistake. They, they, they shouldn't assume that. But in other parts of town, and I know I have colleagues who told me they had to wait in line four or five hours. This is ridiculous. You have, you know, we have one drop box in Harris County for people that want to vote absentee. Harris County, for those who don't know, for those who don't live in Texas or Houston, is bigger than the state of Connecticut, for example. We have one drop box for basically a population and, you know, land mass bigger than an entire state. And, and that county gets one ballot drop box. Right. And then, you know, of course, we're going to restrict, and so some people don't want absentee validating at all, uh, because that's where, you know, fraudulent voting, even though we've had states, entire states, Oregon, the entire state votes absentee. And let's not forget, too, let's not forget, Republicans love the military, support our troops. How do you think a majority of active duty troops vote by mail? Do they not deserve to vote? If you are so pro-military, are you willing to take away the vote of our active military members? And the answer should be no. And But still, that's the one, and majority, I would say, of most mail-in votes come from military members and senior citizens. Theoretically, those are two of the strongholds of the Republican Party. You would think so, and this, but this is where, and, and, and my politics rules, I think, I, I look at it in things in terms of 5%, okay? So Biden won the, the 2020 election. I think, what was it, the final, about 52-48, somewhere around there? Imagine you give him 5%. 57-43? Holy shit, that's a blowout. That's just 5%. And so Republicans know this, Democrats know this. And so we're always looking for ways to get that 5%. What is the Republican way? We're going to get the people that we know are not going to vote for us you don't get to vote. So, I mean, you look at like Georgia, they couldn't hand out water in the voting line. It's illegal to hand out water. So we're going to sit there. We're going to make you wait four five, six hours. And then we're not going to No, I mean, what are they going to do? Haul me off in handcuffs. If I, you know, hand out a bottled water to somebody waiting in line. I mean, it's the, the stupidest thing ever. But the whole point is, is they know it's not going to be a lot of people that are going to be impacted by this. Most people have a driver's license. Most people can produce a birth certificate or they can produce a passport. But you get that five in some areas, maybe 10 percent. Louisiana, I know in New Orleans, a lot of people don't have driver's license. They, they, they walk everywhere. So that five, 10 percent can't vote. They're going to be voting overwhelmingly Democratic. And all of a sudden, like say a 51-49 race that would have gone to the Democrats, swing that 5% over, turns Republican. That's how Trump gained the White House in 2016. There were about those three or four states that were just within a percentage point. And if we just tweak things just a little, we can get that swung the other way. And it's not even just the White House. You know, a quick story from my life, I... First time I voted um, Democratic, I voted in the primary for the 2018 election. I voted in the Democratic primary. I voted Republican until that point. 
grew up in Clear Lake, and then I, you know, life changes. I start to realize some things. I have been registered to vote since the moment I turned 18. If I remember correctly, you could sign up in high school uh, mm-hmm. to register to vote. I voted in every election since I turned 18. I showed up to election day in 2018 to cast my vote for uh, for Beto for state senator. And lo and behold, after I voted in the Democratic primary, I was no longer a registered voter. I've always been a registered voter. I've voted in every election. But somehow, I was taken off the ballot when I voted in the Democratic primary. No one can give me an answer as to why it happened, but Texas is very well known for deleting voters off of the registration process. And the thing about Texas is there's no same-day registration. If you're not pre-registered to vote, it's typically a month ahead of the election, you're not voting. And so at that point, I wasn't able to vote. And it was something that to this day is stuck in my craw because that is, I'm... I'm not the person they're going after in that scenario. I got caught up in, but I got caught up in voter suppression. I was example one of whatever of Texas voter suppression and how Ted Cruz stayed in office. Because I think if you go, if you go to a bar and you poll people in that bar, how do you feel about Ted Cruz? This is just my guess. 75% of people in that bar are not going to like Ted Cruz. Yeah, and it's a similar thing, and it's one of the ones the way that Texas uh, runs its elections. Rick Perry, I think the last election he actually ran in, a majority of people voted against Rick Perry, and I'm going to state it exactly like that, because you had um, Kinky Friedman, God, that dumbass, and uh, Strayhorn. Run uh, so Strayhorn runs actually in the Republican primary, and then she runs independent. And of course, Kinky Friedman runs independent. Who's voting for Kinky Friedman, really? I mean, come on, they're voting because they hate Rick Perry. So sixty percent of the people vote for either the Democratic candidate or those two jamokes. But Rick Perry has forty percent. It's a plurality. He's our governor. They even ran ad campaigns, and this ad campaign was hilarious. It basically sat there and said, you know, between elections, every four years, we're wondering, how in the hell is Rick Perry our governor? And then every four years, we vote for Rick Perry. I mean, and that's basically, you know. Same thing with Greg Abbott. I mean, it's it's literally, I almost got into literally a fist fight on my honeymoon in Mexico. Uh, I was sitting in in a hot tub with some friends that I made. You know, we're having a one of the guys just left, literally just left the army. We're having a conversation. Politics comes up. All these older guys come in and did not like my opinion on, on Greg Abbott. Did not like it. Literally was ready to fight me because he's, oh, you're a Beto guy, huh? It's like, yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I didn't have running water for 12 days after the last winter storm. I'm not going to vote for the guy who did that. But at the end of the day, that's one of five people in a room. One guy, everybody else lived in Texas, one guy wanted to vote for Greg Abbott. But it's these people that are so passionate, so ready to fight, they put them on the news, they show them, and then they voter suppress, and we're led to believe that Texas loves Greg Abbott. We are Greg Abbott people. And it's, again, you could walk into, I want to say most restaurants in most populated areas, 
do a quick little straw poll, and I guarantee you more than 60% hate that guy. Yeah, and you heard it here first. Tim fighting old people right here. I, uh, almost, almost fought an old guy. <laughs> so, and, and the great thing is when we put these some of these together, right? And some of these 14 together. So getting off the voting thing. So we have controlled mass media, number six, and I'm going to match it up with rampant cronyism and corruption, 13. So think about it when we're running in the 2016 election. I did not like Hillary Clinton. When I voted in a Democratic primary, I did not vote for Hillary Clinton. I was a Bernie Sanders supporter at that point uh, between the two of them. Uh, I'm still a Bernie Sanders guy. I, I, would, uh, I, I would vote for Bernie today. And, and compared to what most of them are, I mean, there's some things about Bernie that you know kind of bother me a little bit, but nobody's perfect. And the thing is I love about Bernie Sanders, at least he doesn't change his opinions. I mean, he's been saying the same thing for 40 years. But the thing is, is that if you look at the way that we cover the candidates, right? So I could make just a laundry list of all the crap Trump has done over the last 50 years. And just, you know, he's been involved in, in literally thousands of lawsuits. Um, his charity is no longer able to function as a charity. He had a university that was just basically fraud. He put tons of construction, small businesses out of business by refusing to pay them after they built Trump Tower, Trump Mahal, any of his, anytime he built something, he won't pay you. And then you have to sue him to get a small portion. And in that time period, your small business goes out of business because you can't afford the debt that you took on to do that job. So think, let's look at Trump. And this is my favorite story with Trump. Because when you think about Las Vegas and you think about who runs Las Vegas, the stereotype is that it's run by the mafia, which is actually not really the case anymore. But we'll go along, go with it, right? The mafia. He has applied to open up a casino in Las Vegas. They will refuse to let him have one. And the reason is they said that he is, quote, Fundamentally dishonest. Well, when Roy Cohen, when Roy Cohen is your family lawyer, and after that you hire Roger Stone because Roy Cohen is dead, you hired mob lawyers. Like his, his lawyer is a mob lawyer. Roger Stone is a mob lawyer. Roy Cohen was a mob fixer. These are the people that he associates with. And the mob is saying you're fundamentally dishonest. Right. That, that, uh, and so, but here and here we're to tie this up in a bow. Here's the point. The, uh, if we're going to use baseball as an analogy, right, the mass media or just media in general, their job is to call balls and strikes. That's their job. What mass media has turned into is that they think that you have to call just as many balls as you do strikes, which is a little bit different than calling balls and strikes. So right. you should have as many strikeouts as walks. You should have as many balls as you have strikes. So you have all of this tons of crap on Trump's side. But every time we bring up a negative Trump point, we have to bring up a negative Hillary point. So we're going to keep hitting on Benghazi, and we're going to keep hitting on her email server, because those are the only two things that we have going for us right now. I guess anti-Hillary, major stuff. 
Okay. Obviously, there are other reasons not to like Hillary, and you and I could both enumerate those, but you know, but that's not really the point here. Point here is that you have this guy who is the biggest crook in America in the last 50 years. But in order to mention something where he has committed a crime, we're going to have to mention something on the other side. It's like, no. Balls and strikes. This yeah. guy is a crook. Let's focus on the fact that this guy's a crook. Has this other person done some things that are bad? Okay, as somebody who works with confidential emails, do I think that, you know, and I, don't, I certainly don't have top secret or, you know, world trade secrets, but I, I have confidentiality agreements. I can't tell you the names of students that I have, that I work with. That's confidential. So when somebody tells me that this person was kind of footloose and fancy free with confidential information, yeah, that's, that's bad. But you know what's what, worse? <laughs> what's happening over here? I mean, it was ridiculous. Yeah, it was. It, and it's not even. So we talked earlier about the fairness doctrine, right? Where you had to mention both sides of things. And I, I'm not a huge necessarily believer in the fairness doctrine per se, just because there's not always another side to a story. Sometimes reporting the facts are just that. They are the facts. You can you don't peek outside and, and one person says it's raining and then you bring a second weatherman on to go, well, actually, uh, that's not rain. That's, that's a really fat guy sweating and just, no, it's raining. And so there are times where, yes, it is, it is important to hear both sides and it would be nice to have legitimate news organizations that weren't skewed by your political views but we don't need this there, there doesn't always need to be both sides we need to just be reporting the facts and you mentioned you know the calling of balls and strikes and i even feel like it's gone beyond that they're now calling balls and strikes from the booth you know now you've got they're not just the umpire they're the color commentator as well and that's and that's the problem is we, they've inserted themselves into the game. You know when I when I was in broadcasting school, we always talked about the best broadcasters don't make themselves part of the game. They highlight the game. They make it an enjoyable experience. They fill the gaps, but they are not the reason that you're tuning in. Tucker Carlson inserts himself into the game. Glenn Beck makes himself the game. Laura Ingram makes themselves the game. They're not just calling balls and strikes anymore. They are, you know, Angel Hernandezing all over this all over. You know, it's not just missing calls. Now they're egregious missed calls. Now they're making the game about Angel Hernandez behind the plate. You know, sorry to Angel for catching a little shrapnel here, but you kind of do deserve it. Um, you are the poster boy for making the game about yourself as an umpire. But that being said, that's what these people are. They're, they have combined Tony Romo and Angel Hernandez into one entity, and they're, they're calling the game from the booth. And they are unable to understand their role. They're unable to be accurate in either one of the roles because they're trying to do both at the same time. And they're doing it in such a poor way that they've drawn attention from the game, and it's all about themselves. Well, and to borrow from your analogy on the weather, I don't think anybody is saying it's raining or it's not raining. I think what's happening is, is that, you know, the commentary, and this is where both sides comes in, 
his commentary is, it's raining, and here's why it's the Democrats' fault. And you're like, wait a minute. It's raining. Because we were talking about this with coal last week, you know, the whole, you know, the coal industry. You know, where some of the one side says like, well, we need to get everybody in an umbrella. Everybody should get, you know, no. Just tell me it's raining. I'll figure it out from there. You know, whether I need an umbrella, raincoat, you know, whatever. But, you know, don't blame it on somebody. Don't sit there and say, well, this is, you know, this is the reason's fault. But that's what happened. Scott and I are trying something a little bit different. So we are going to break this episode into two separate parts. So this will be the end of part one. Part two will come out on Friday. Part one is going to come out on Thursday. So stay tuned for part two. And we look forward to having you back on Friday. And then we'll be back on our normal schedule next week. <laughs>